Our scripture reading this morning is from Luke chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. morning, everyone. Wonderful to see you. This morning, I did not wear my sports memorabilia for the sake of not causing any stumbling blocks in church while I stand up here before you, Uh, but all bets are off after church, Paul. So uh, hope to see you afterwards at the barbecue. And uh, we were praying before service today, and, you know, it just, I had this this thought um, that came to mind while we were praying. Somebody recently, as I was thinking about your birthday, somebody recently told me, oh, you're middle-aged. And that was the first time I heard that, and it dawns on me, they're right. And that happened just like that. Yes, I'm middle-aged. And while we would tend to prize youth, and especially sometimes in ministry, I think the vitality that comes out of youth and young pastors and church leaders, you know, we kind of, we like that, but... I actually think that at this phase, looking forward, the best years are yet to come. And so that was like my encouragement and just my thought and prayer is that, brother, our best years are yet to come. The gospel, yes, you can clap for that, yeah. I think that the gospel is always going to be in need and that we learn so much in life as we've sat under it, as we've labored with it, as we've wrestled with it personally And I I feel like now we're getting to the place, Paul, now we're getting to the place where we have something to offer the church and where we can speak from a different perspective of all that we've seen of our longer history now of what God has done, right, Uh, from our middle-aged position. (laughs) So, brother, encouragement to you. Happy birthday. The best is yet to come, no doubt. Well, this morning's passage in Luke, I just want to say a few things before we jump into it. Luke chapter 14, when we read the passage this morning, as you were reading it in your Bibles, depending on the translation that you use, you will notice your headings and your number verse references. I just want to remind us, we're aware of this, that those are not divinely inspired of God. And, you know, it's not to say that they're unimportant, but those really are interpretations that have been added for our benefit, that we can quickly reference the scripture If you were to read the Bible in its original languages, the Old Testament, we find Hebrew, ancient Hebrew, and bits and pieces of Aramaic. And if you read the New Testament, it was written written entirely in Greek. 
And by the way, Greek, that's hard to read, even if you're a student of Greek, because the papyri have the Greek letters all in what we would say is capitals, and there's no spaces in between words. So you have to really know the language in order to to read it. So what we have is an interpretation. If you noticed when you were reading uh, from your translation, you could read even farther beyond where we stopped in verse 11. In fact, if you have an NIV copy of the Bible in English, or if you have an NASB version of the Bible, uh, you will notice that this whole uh, this story goes on all the way through to verse 15. And that's, that's good, be, that's okay, that's permissible as well under that same heading because this whole section is about banqueting, it's about feasting, it's about sharing a meal. We know that we're in this, this series now, Meals with Jesus, we've been doing this over the summer, and it's highlighted really a foundational, foundational mode and method of Jesus' earthly ministry. He ate meals with people. And he ate meals with people indiscriminately, with all kinds of people. We remember our verse that kind of shows us the method of Jesus' ministry. Luke chapter 7, verse 34 reads, The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. That was Jesus' method of evangelism. Why did he do it that way? Why did Jesus come eating and drinking? I think the answer is simple. Why? Because God built us to eat. Amen? You know, we all need to eat. And a way to win someone's heart is through their stomach. It has always been that way because it's part of our humanity. Is that true? Absolutely. We're going to eat today. I mean, that's a good part of church is eating together. It's, it's a winsome time to eat together. We certainly are, especially here in Sonoma County, in an eating culture, aren't we? This is a culinary destination that people tour to to enjoy what's here. Uh, And there's some great offerings around the county. My favorite channel is the Food Network. I'll just confess that I like the Food Network. Probably after church today, in between napping, I'm going to turn on the Food Network and I'll watch a couple cooking shows. Yeah, The Kitchen, I like that show. Don't make fun of me, don't judge. It's just, it's fun. It's fun to watch them make things. America's favorite holiday, stats tell us, is Thanksgiving. It beats Christmas. Yeah, Uh, I know it's hard to believe, but just think about why that would be the case is because, generally speaking, people love to share a meal with their their loved ones. Luke chapter 14, I want to talk about context before we unpack it together. I want to kind of paint a picture of context here. Um, It's all about banqueting. Luke chapter 14 is about having a meal. And this theme of banqueting was actually introduced earlier. If you were to read one chapter earlier in verse 13, chapter 13, verses 29 through 30, Jesus speaking, he says this, people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table. ESV doesn't have the article there. That's not a typo. At table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. Notice here that in this verse, Jesus mentions reclining at the table of the kingdom of God. And the image of sitting at God's banqueting table is a prominent theme throughout the entire Bible. Think of verses like Psalm 23. You prepare a table before me 
David says, in the presence of my enemies, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Heaven is a seat at God's table. To be in the house of God is to be seated at a table before you with a meal that has been presented. So I like to think of that metaphor of heaven being a place where there's a banquet. And who doesn't love to say heaven is going to be an amazing meal? There's no calories in heaven, some people I've heard say. I don't have to worry. I'm just going to enjoy, right? I like that imagery. It's seen throughout the entire Bible. Uh, Heaven and the, the banquet of God is like fine dining, unlike anything else we can experience. It's a powerful and comforting image, especially as we live in a troublesome world, to sit at the table of God for what he prepares for you. It is a comforting image. One of the most powerful descriptions of the table for ancient Israel, it comes from Isaiah, the prophet, chapter 25, verses 6 through 9. And it's such a vivid picture of what I'm talking about as the kingdom of God being a table that I want to read it for you. And I would encourage you maybe later in the week, remember these verses, maybe you read it again. It's, it's a powerful devotional verse. It's the image, the vision of Israel and their, their hope in God uh, and how he would come to them. Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 through 9. Again, I'm giving context. On this mountain... The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, full of aged wine, well-refined. And Sonoma County says, amen. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. What a powerful image of the kingdom of God. In fact, some commentators call this the messianic banquet, that this is what they believed the Messiah would come and usher in. That day, he would set before us a meal. And I love what it says here. There's comforting at the table of God provided by the Messiah. It is that he wipes away our tears because we all come in to the banquet, to the table, with some wounds, some heavy things that we've experienced in the world out there, scars, traumas. We have things that we've grieved over. And it says he wipes away not some eyes. He wipes away all the tears from their eyes, all peoples, Jews and Gentiles. That's the context of, as we now think about why would Jesus come eating and drinking The Messiah has come, and the table is set. The kingdom is upon them. So as we come here now to chapter 14, we think of the table, we see the table set before them, and what I want to talk about as we look at the verses, I want to talk about lifestyle here, and the dynamics of the table that we just read about with Jesus sharing this meal. And and I want to phrase our time 
by talking about it like this. How does Jesus teach us the culture of the table by this lesson of Luke chapter 14? What is the etiquette for sitting at God's table? That these would be kind of things that we cultivate in our lifestyle as we're now part of this kingdom and as we're preparing for its fullness in in eternity. What is the etiquette for sitting at God's table? So I have three things I'm going to share with you as we look at the verses. And I just want you to know I'm a little bit, right now, I'm in a little bit of teacher mode. Uh, We're back to school. Some of you know that I'm working in the public school district as in Windsor as a guest teacher. And so at the beginning of the year, I actually have a class that they plop me into. I'm, I'm working with the littles. I've never worked with the littles. We're talking little, little. We're talking three-year-olds to five-year-olds. I'm working TK. I know, your eyes should be big. That's my eye. That was my response, too. And so they've not had any background to school. And so we're doing all the startup stuff with them. And I have support. I have other teachers who are supporting that. I'm not alone. Thank God. But at the beginning of the year, we're going through rules and simple, like, expectations. And I've been told, just dial things down to threes. And keep them really simple, short statements they'll remember. And you know what? It works. So I figure if it works with the littles, can it work with us? It'll work. I I hope so. So the first one, what's the etiquette for sitting at God's table? It's the lifestyle for now coming into the kingdom of God, being at the table of the Lord. Number one, check your posture. What's your posture like? How are you seated? You know, posture is about like the way that you're, before God. I mean, ask ourselves, how are you sitting before God today? Is your posture one that's open to God? Or is it closed? See the two different postures. Body language and posture, it speaks about the condition of what's inside your heart. So in verse 1, we read that Jesus is dining at a ruler of the Pharisees on the Sabbath. And here's the description of them. It says that they were watching him closely. And it goes on to say in verse 4 that they remain silent. Now, at a first read, kind of a soft read of this, you would probably not notice those descriptions, but they're really important, and Luke includes them purposefully. His language, out of all the gospel writers, he was, you know, a Gentile, very precise, that he's watching them close, that they're watching them closely, all these Pharisees, and that they're remaining silent. While it might appear like good behavior, it's not. The language here is not positive. It's not like me, you know, teaching my class and they're hinging on my words, watching me closely. In fact, I was telling Paul at some of our, th- our theology um, lessons on Sunday nights, a plug for that, Surviving Religion 101, when there were times when people had questions and, and there would be the delivery of some good answers from Pastor Paul and people were hinging on his words. They were trying to soak it in. That's different. That's not what's happening here. And when they remain silent, you know, I love silence when in my class. I always have to, I've learned, like, we do these calls. Like, if you have, like, four or five littles with you, and try the calls on them and see if it works. Like, I say, eyes on me to my class, and they all shout it. They freeze, eyes on you, and they have to point at me because I've trained them. Your, your ears follow your eyes, right? So when, when they get quiet, it's like now they can listen and follow in. Well, they're, listen, they're, they're silent not because they're listening not because they're, you know, uh, somehow being good students. No, they're quiet because it goes on to talk about, you know, uh, later it will say when Jesus asks them a hard question about healing on the Sabbath, they feel trapped by the question. 
Because if, if they say that healing is a work that breaks the Sabbath rule of rest, uh, then they will show that, you know, they don't care about humanity. You know, if, depending on how they answer, they could definitely trap themselves. They could, they could show that they don't care about this man who walks in with dropsy, that he's, he's in need of help. And if, if they say, you can't heal Jesus, it looks like they're calloused. So they can't say anything. But if they say, yeah, go ahead and heal on the Sabbath, it's okay, it's lawful. Then they look like hypocrites because they're men of the law. So they're silent because they're trapped. They're trying to save face. They're trying to hold their posture. And it's not a good description. So backtrack. Earlier in chapter 11, verses 53 through 54, hello, the wind. Earlier in chapter 11, verses 53 and through 54, we also see a different meal when Jesus is also with Pharisees. He's at their house. And, and this is, again, still a little bit of context. Jesus, in that meal, he calls them out. He calls them out as sort of hypocritical. You know, that, that they, he actually proclaims woes upon them. He calls them like their, their cups that are so clean on the outside but they're dirty on the inside. You ever seen a cup like that comes out of the dishwasher and makes you so mad? You know, it's, it's, it's clean on the outside, but it's got cake stuff on the inside, especially if you have your children washing the dishes and they put it back in and they didn't rinse everything and you're like, oh, what is that? You know, so Jesus is saying, you Pharisees, hypocrites. And you know the Greek word hypocrite, what it, what it literally translates to? Actor. I hate to say that. If there's any actors in the house, um, uh, it's not intended to be offensive, but the word, the concept of hypocrite is actor. You're playing a part. It's just an external facade. It's not really who you are. He calls the Pharisees that in chapter 11 at this di- dinner, and how do you think they responded? Negative. So Luke's descriptions are very vivid of how, how these her- Pharisees respond. They, they talk about, we are so insulted by you, Jesus. And then it says that they begin pressing hard on him that they start asking him tough questions. They're starting to undermine him. And then it says, Luke tells us, that they begin to plot against him. They start lying in wait. And they they start looking for ways. They hunt for, the literal language is, they hunt for opportunities to make Jesus look bad. They're looking to undermine him. So back to 14 now. What's the posture? Check the posture. These guys are lying in wait, watching closely. Let's see if we can find some dirt. He's going to say something right now that's going to trip him up, himself up. And we can make him look bad, and he can stop having this following that he's gaining as he's traveling to all these places. He's probably somewhere close to Jerusalem now. we got to stop him. And we, we don't like what he has to say. So they're going to remain silent because he actually asks them a really good question that they have nothing to respond to. Why are they acting like that? Why are they sitting this way? This is the messianic hope. Certainly these Pharisees would have been well aware of Isaiah's messianic banquet passage. These men would have known that. They would have had an expectation for God presenting them a table. And get this, they are literally sitting with the Messiah. Why is their posture that way? That's a question that just glares at me. He's right there. Well, let's talk about who they are. Pharisees were ancient Jewish leaders. They were comprised of various classes in society. They were dedicated to the strict observance 
of religious law, namely the Torah. And they believed that personal holiness would lead to the fulfillment of messianic hope. So they were keepers of the law. They held positions of political power. And they attempted to influence the Jewish society to honor the Torah. Some commentators actually go as far to call them not just like a political group, but actually a table fellowship because they organized over meals. The meal was the place, the gathering of, of how you, you really um, uh, perpetuate status. And they actually saw the home as the place for personal piety. And there's something good about that. They, they saw that, you know, there's elements of your home that mirrors God's holy temple. For example, the table itself could be an altar, like the altar in the Holy of Holies. And so therefore, we need to be clean for the table that's set before us. If this is God's table, we need to wash our hands before we eat. And we need to make sure that we're seated properly at the, at the right places. You know, follow, make sure you're buttoned up right. You know, make sure you don't put your, you know, you think about etiquette, those books of etiquette, all the stuff, your elbows on the table, right? You know, they're thinking about all the things that they have to do to be clean at the table, status blessing, everything comes from following the law. That's how they viewed table fellowship. They organized around that. And so this kind of religious belief, we know it as legalism. And, you know, Paul preached, this, preached, preached it this morning just in the catechism, in what we said there, that we are not under the law, but legalism still looks to the law as a way to justify oneself before God. It's the idea that a person's goal in life is to remain dutiful to divine standards so that you might earn God's acceptance as if it's something that you can be good enough to earn. Your aim in life is just to be a good human, make good choices, be ethical, contribute to society. These Pharisees sitting at this table, this is what they were thinking. They were thinking, oh, that we might keep the law in a precise fashion so that when the great day comes, we will be counted worthy to sit with the Messiah and all the true believers at his banquet. Did I sound pharisaical enough? I tried. Okay, I'm not a good hypocrite. I'm not a good actor. I can't act. But they would have been thinking, what must we do to earn our way? They were legalists. And so that's why they have that posture. This posture of pharisaism, it's alive and well today. Charles Spurgeon once preached that everyone is born a legalist. Many think that people are born innately good and not sinful. It's really society that conditions us to do evil. And so therefore, people pursue what seems righteous to them. And in that pursuit, it's then easy to become judgmental, to be critical to those who live and behave differently than us. The Pharisees were critical of Jesus because he didn't wash his hands before a meal. And he ate with known sinners. They would would ask him questions like, Rabbi, you know who you're sitting next to? That's a, a woman of the city. That's not, she doesn't belong here at this table. Legalism leads to that kind of posture and behavior. And it leads away from God, not toward God. Legalism is a self-righteousness. It really makes there no need for God because you are your own God. Just follow the law. One of the shows that our family sometimes enjoys on the Food Network is the show Chopped. Anybody seen the show Chopped? I like the show Chopped. I'm being transparent here. You can judge. That's fine. But I like Chopped. Uh, Four chefs compete against each other for a short period of time. They create elegant meals with ingredients that they did not get to see beforehand, and they get like 20, 30 minutes to come up with something that's supposed to be extravagant and amazing. 
It demonstrates skill, mastery over food, and then this panel of really high-end chefs who are the experts, right? They get to critique every element of execution and every little ingredient. It's really fun to watch as they judge, isn't it? It's like, oh, this is, tastes terrible, or I really got the hint of blah, 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 all these herbs you've never heard of, and it's like, I don't, okay, but it's fun. It's fun to watch. It's part of the entertainment. But that dynamic, it just reminds me of that, that dynamic of picking people apart, of watching closely, is a dynamic of, of culture. We live in a chopped society. The, the meal that doesn't uh, get through is the one that gets chopped, and that person gets eliminated. When something doesn't add up or taste good to us, we chop it, and we discard it and get rid of it. That's our posture. And while it's fun to watch in a food competition, it's not good to see in our culture. You can listen to media commentary, watch media, listen to it on the radio, and you can hear the rhetoric of criticism that is chopping people. It's about chopping. No longer are we just about weighing arguments in the marketplace and in public spaces of weighing logic, what is plausible and what evidence there is to believe that something is true and weighing arguments in a rational, reasonable way. No, we resort, resort to a passion that leads to chopping people, personal attacks, and there's a lot of vitriol out there. If I move the conversation to social media, it's even worse, right? If you have social media, you know people are watching carefully, aren't they? Ready to pounce, remaining silent until there's that moment to say something that I don't agree with, and I'm going to chop that person. It's just so common. We live now with technology, a video capture world online. Life happens in real time. You can see things happening live. Hello to everybody who's watching online right now. That's a great example. Rewind, instant replay. We can slow things down so that we can nitpick like we've never been able to nitpick and judge in history right now. Legalism, Phariseeism, it's a culture that is alive and well. We like watching documentaries about disgraced people who made bad choices and just watched the train wreck, right? We, we can see so much behavior that's out there that's mean-spirited, lying in wait, just like the Pharisees, waiting to attack. Anyone who disagrees with you, anyone who you may not think is as arrived as you, that's, that's the culture out there. It's, it's, it's the world's culture. This is not Jesus' way. This is not the etiquette of Jesus. So if you read forward in verse 15, we didn't read it, but if you read forward in verse 15, you will see the posture of Jesus at the table. Check your posture. Look at Jesus' posture. It says what? What is he doing? He is reclining. Now, Luke really paints good pictures of the meals that individuals shared with Jesus, he gives these descriptive words that we're not supposed to just gloss past. Every instance of Jesus eating with a group of people, it always says that he is reclining. What is that posture? Reclining, and you want to imagine how they would have been eating in the ancient Mediterranean world. They would have been laying down. They would have been either laying on their forward bellies or on their sides facing the table. It doesn't sound really like a good way to eat. And grandma always told me, don't lay down and eat, even though I used to love watching TV as a kid and popping Cheetos while the TV, you know, just sitting on the couch, right? But that's how they ate. They reclined. And that posture 
Luke, Luke wants his audience, who's a Gentile audience, to see, like, we get what that means. That's in a posture of intimacy. That's a posture of acceptance. That's interesting. If you think about it just for a minute, when you're ready for the attack, what do you do? You sit up. You, you, you're ready to, like, you, you get bigger. But when you're laying down, don't, don't you feel vulnerable? You know, when you go to sleep at night, you feel relaxed. You're supposed to be at peace. Reclining, the way Jesus is reclining, is a posture of acceptance. Luke's makes sure to tell you that point. He's not only reclining with sinners, but he's also reclining with who? Pharisees. He was indiscriminate about who he reclined with. The table was open. The, the opportunity for acceptance was open to everyone, including those Pharisees. The question that he's posing to the Pharisees is one that they could actually have answered. They had opportunity here to answer and maybe change their thinking a little bit about the Sabbath. Jesus accepted them. He was sharing a meal with them. There's identity even for people who are reclined together at a table that's wrapped up. We're community. We're together. And he was treating them that he was treating them this way as well. So, unfortunately, the Pharisees did not change their posture. But this, this first part, the context, the dynamics of the table is instructive to us because in our lives as believers, we should watch our posture. Uh, Jesus was a recliner. We should be people who recline. Is our posture to people, even the ones that we don't agree with, you know, and there's plenty around us that we could see, ideas that we disagree with, is our posture to our fellow humanity like this, open, or is it like this? You know, the commentators tell us that the Hebrew word for Pharisee, among some of the meanings they believe it's attributed to, one of them on the top of the list is separatist. If these guys were elitists, they're separatists, they had their huddle, their holy huddle, and no one else. Unless you follow the laws, then you can come in. But what about people who couldn't follow the laws? What about people who, like this man who walk in, who's not, who walks in, he's not clean, he has dropsy. Uh, modern medicine would say this is an edema, which is, I had to look it up, it's a swelling of the skin. So that fluid collects under the skin, and your, your skin actually pills. So if you touch the skin, it like sinks in, and it's painful. It happens especially in your, your limbs and extremities. So you imagine walking around with just swollenness. This guy was in constant chronic pain. And yet, um, as, as he uh, is healed, you know, you, you just think about this man's life changed. You know, he wasn't clean when he walked in. He wasn't, he wasn't ready for this meal the way the Pharisees would have wanted. This was a teaching moment. When Jesus heals him, you think that that guy probably enjoyed the Sabbath after that? Like, that's the point of Sabbath. That's the point to the legalist. A legalist is like somebody who loves the lines on the road and stop signs and stoplights. So I just love those things. They tell me, they keep me in my lane. They tell me what to do. Those rules, those laws, they're, I just love those laws. But those are there to preserve life, that we might enjoy the road. Um, that, you know, even when we're in traffic, although that's a little bit harder. This man was healed. He was changed. And that was better. This man probably experienced the Sabbath for the first time in years. For a long time. He had chronic pain in his life. And now he's experiencing peace at the table of God. That's an important lesson to learn here. So watch our posture. 
The second lesson, the second point of etiquette, what's the etiquette for sitting at God's table? Don't assume VIP status. VIP stands for very important person. Jesus observes, it says, that all the Pharisees came in and they sat themselves based on their status, based on which ones were more powerful or more influential, maybe had more money, uh, people maybe who obviously um, afforded the meal. The host probably would have sat at the center. Here's a little depiction for you, exa- uh, sort of what we think uh, their, their dinner meal would have looked like. So in this picture, ancient Mediterranean meals of especially wealthy people, there would be a U-shaped table, and the couches would be laid kind of in front of the table. Now, if you were a peasant and you weren't wealthy, you probably didn't have couches, and you would just lay down on the ground. Uh, Perhaps Jesus had houses that he went to where there weren't couches. But these were Pharisees. The ruler of the Pharisees was throwing this, and so it's likely it looks similar to this. The host would sit at the base of the U, so right in the middle. So that's so they can see everybody. And this configuration, by the way, you're able to look around the table and take inventory. Who's sitting where? You kind of get a sense of who's at the table. And then who would sit next to the host would be the most honored guest. So probably Jesus was sitting right next to the host or somewhere near there. And then it went down in hierarchy from there. Since Jesus was a visiting rabbi in town, he's able to sit at the spot where he can see everybody really well. Now, I love his response to the Pharisees coming in and sitting around this table. It's, the text tells us he observes them. He's, he's also looking, but he's not looking the way they are. Different wording here. He's observing them. He's watching how they sat at different seats at the table. And, and I like to say it this way. He's observing in order that he might serve. And this really is a way that pastors and anybody who serves in ministry, this is what we need to do. We need to just pay attention to people. That's shepherding. You know, when you look in and see, how's, how's somebody looking today? You know, how are they walking? Are they, do they look healthy today? Are they, are they looking maybe like they've had a hard week? Like he's observing so that he might serve. And what he observes is they all sit around based on who's popular. There's a hierarchy here. And so then he moves on because he knows that this hierarchy is based on the motives of their heart. And he tells a parable about a wedding banquet. And he says in verse 8, he says, Don't sit in places of honor unless someone who's more distinguished than you be invited. You sit in these places of honor, but what if somebody walks in and you're sitting in their seat because they're more honorable than you? You're going to have to now get up and in front of everybody be shamed, do the walk of shame to go sit in your lower place. And that's, a wor- that's worse. The, the, the proverb here, the wisdom statement is in the parable, you know, humble yourself and you will be exalted. I was talking to Jolene um, about this. Um, Jolene, my wife, is a director of events for a local winery, and right now is the thick of the season. It's, it's um, event season right now. And because of the pandemic, you, you, you can imagine people want to get married. They've been holding off plans, and so it's like it, it's just an intense time for her. She, I, you know, she's working a lot. And I asked her about when she helps coordinate weddings, and she's done this for years where she's helped to coordinate weddings. And I asked her, specifically about seating charts and how do they plan the seating charts at these weddings? You know, this is the parable that Jesus is telling. Tell me, how is that happening now? And what she said is, is pretty on par with what we're talking about here because humanity is humanity. She said that uh, the host typically is the one who plans the seating chart and, and they base that on how they're related to the host. 
Um, so if you're close family or friends, obviously you're going to sit closer to the head table. And other people who are there, you know, you're kind of seated all throughout. And I was like, that makes sense to me. You know, you don't want to sit mom in the back of the room. That's not fair. Um, but then I asked, you know, what happens when people show up? Do they usually follow the seating chart? She said, for the most part, people do. But she said, there's always one or two, every wedding, people who are, they, they totally disregard the seating chart. And um, they look at the seating chart, and they might look at it and say, I don't like that person, or I'm too far away, or this is not supposed to be my seat. They didn't really mean I'm supposed to sit here. And they, they just sit somewhere else, and it makes a problem. Um, <laughs> why do they do that, I asked. She said, well, those people, after we start serving them, they tend to be pretty, they lack a little bit of submissiveness. She said, just quite frankly, they, they tend to be really difficult and stubborn. Like, they just think they get to sit where they want, you know. Not always, but oftentimes they're just stubborn people that just want to sit right where they are. I, I actually, we encountered this once. I don't know if you remember this, but I officiated a wedding years ago. And follow the seating chart. Like a, good, like a good pastor, you know, just follow the seating chart where my friend had seated us for the reception. And this couple walked, you remember, this couple came and walked by, and the, the, the dude knew who I was. Obviously, everybody in the room knows who we are, you know. And this guy probably came to enjoy a little bit of the reception, do you know what I mean? And he hated, and, and that's not an exaggeration, that he had to sit next to the pastor. He, he came over and looked, and he was like, oh, crying out loud. You know, like, I got to sit there, and he was vocal about it. Uh, and then he started asking, can I go sit over there? You know, he was, like, asking other people, can I sit, is this seat taken? Can I? He started trying to move himself, you know, and, and he, he couldn't find another seat, so he had to sit next to me. And, uh, and then complained and was kind of insulting to us the whole time. So he definitely fit the pattern of, of the person that thinks they're VIP. And what Jesus is saying is it's better to be invited to be VIP seating than to assume it. It's better for you to sit uh, in a place where you have been given or gifted that place to sit. Why were the Pharisees doing this hierarchy? And this is really the, the nuts and bolts of it. They were prideful. All this came out of pride. You would think that the Pharisees, being men of the scriptures, would even know their Hebrew Bible because the Bible says a lot about the sin of pride. Just look at some of these verses. The Torah, Deuteronomy. When you eat and are satisfied, then your heart will become proud, and you will forget the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Or the Proverbs. So many verses about pride in the Proverbs. God mocks the proud mockers, but he shows favor to the humble and oppressed. Psalm 10, verse 4 in his pride, the wicked man does not seek him, God. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. Pride is a sin, and it's a sin that leads to all sorts of other sins against humanity. Jealousy, covetousness, slander, quarreling, fighting. It can even lead to murder. It's a sin that leads away from God. So the Pharisees believe dangerously that their pursuits, their prideful pursuits are justified because they're doing the right thing. But God is not impressed. He's not impressed with all their handwritten tickets that they've used to try to gain admission to this banquet, the banquet of God. And I think about that for myself. My, our wealth, our reputation, our education, these are good things, but these are not what make us very important people. I'm not going to stand before God one day and say, Lord, I, I had an important office in your church, 
You know, I was a pastor. I served your church. Um, uh, I had a good education. Uh, you know, I, are you impressed, Lord? I have a master of divinity. Is that good? You know, it's good, right? I belong here with you, God. You know, or I live in Healsburg. People would tell me when we first moved up here, and I didn't have a frame of reference. I was still learning the area. They said, wow, you live in Healsburg? You have arrived. And I didn't know. People would tell me that. I have a picture-perfect family. I've arrived. You think God is going to, to say before, one day to me, yes, now come sit at my table because of all those things? Those are blessings in my life, and I'm grateful for them, but they are not what give me acceptance before God. I belong at God's table because he has invited me there. He's the one who calls me VIP or has given me that VIP treatment. Why? Because he loves us. And that's built into the table. He loves us. So the third, the third etiquette, the final one. Be thankful for the host who loves you. The etiquette of the table. Be thankful for the host who loves you. When you're thankful, that leads to the opposite of pride. It leads to humility because we didn't deserve any of these things anyway. You didn't deserve a cup that overflows with grace, the grace of God. There are benefits of being about at God's table, the blessings of God. There, there are good things about it. There are numerous blessings that flow from our salvation in Jesus Christ. But we shouldn't be just thankful for the things that are at the table that we're enjoying, the things that God has put in your life. You shouldn't be just aware of those things. You should be grateful we should be grateful for the fact that we're seated with Jesus himself in our lives. We're seated with the host. He is good. And it is a miracle that we have a seat with him. That's a miracle. Jesus says that the way to salvation is a narrow door. And if you're seated in the house of God with him, you've come through the narrow door, him, Jesus himself. So you don't have to push and shove or compete. He's given you access and entrance. You don't have to push and shove through the door. He's given you your place if you will take the, him up on his invitation. This made me think about, you know, as I said, I'm back in class. And uh, right now, you know, when the kids come into the classroom, we have all the tables set out and literally trying to treat, teach them um, square one rules. They push and shove into the classroom. They're so excited. They can sit wherever they want and they just shove each other out of the way. You know, move out of the way. And sometimes we might cultivate behavior like that too as adults. We just become more refined about how we do it. You know, we shove towards places that we like better of influence, places of service that we like, go to places and, and people, and, and, and we, just, we just shove. We can push and shove, but we don't need to do that. Jesus, the narrow door, he's giving you invitation and your portion's waiting. It's not going anywhere. He's never going to be dethroned. Nothing's going to take him away. So enjoy it. Enjoy him. Be thankful for him and be humbled because none of us deserve sit at this table by our own status. I've tasted in my own life just the goodness of God. I've been blessed to experience so many things. Uh, I've had so many adventures coming to Christ at the age of 18 and then seeing how God just orchestrated my life as I followed him towards certain people and experiences and travels and ways to serve. You know, there, there are so many stories that I have to share that would not have happened if I didn't just be thankful for the host. My, my table has been really full of great things. I consider being here with one of you among those things. But I thank God because he's the one who blessed me with, with all these things. So 
if Spurgeon is right that we are all born legalists, and I think he's right, then we are all really recovering. We're all recovering legalists. And today, we need to not just care about external facades. We're not under the law. We need to just receive the grace of God that we didn't deserve. Just receive it and be thankful for it today. God's banquet is an open table. His table is open for us. And anyone who would want to place their trust in Jesus. So let's be thankful for him. So remember the etiquette. Check your posture. Don't assume VIP status. And be thankful for the host. Let's pray. So God, this, this story transferring us back to Jesus sharing a meal with Pharisees is relatable. We all struggle with this. We, we daily try to earn status. And we sometimes even go as far to wrap up our identity in the things that we've earned. But our identity, who we are, is only important because it's been an identity given to us in Christ. We belong to you. We are children of God. If we trust Jesus, we belong to you. That's where our, our identity is found. Jesus knew that no one could earn their way to God, so he had to be a perfect sacrifice for us. And so we just put, want to be reminded of grace today. And when we think about it in that sense, that we have received a gift that we didn't earn, it causes humility. It causes joy. It causes that image that we read in Isaiah to come to life again. So I just pray for us this week just that we're renewed in the banqueting table of the Lord. And that if there are tears on our eyes, if there are certain, you know, struggles that we've dealt with, if we've come in with chronic pain, Lord, that, that we remember you want rest for us, shalom, that you want healing for us. And whether we see it on this side of earth or in the next, you will heal us through Christ. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus. I pray for everyone here that we're able to see him anew today. In his name, amen.